0: Spark Nation. I'm Jim Wyatt, founder of ETF.com and CEO of Spark Network. And this is Pennies from Heaven, a podcast featuring choice insights and lively debate with all the biggest names in the ETF world and beyond. Join us each week to receive Pennies from Heaven straight from the nattering nabobs of investment as they discuss hot button topics and what's to come. In this episode, you'll hear ETF industry icon, ETF Trends Director of Research, and my good friend, Dave Nottig, talk to me about the ETF industry and what's to come in the future. We also discussed the fine print at Robinhood, how better UX design will be the next grand challenge of finance, why Kathy Wood's ARK Invest will always stand apart, and the ongoing conundrum that is crypto funds. Thanks for coming in. You look beautiful. Your Thank setup, you. your video, spectacular. Complete with a guitar, like kind of fuzzy in Years the background. Being a
1: hobbyist paid off. It took a pandemic to be having being a photography hobbyist pay off.
0: Spectacular, spectacular. Gotta up my game. In the meantime, what I'm going to do is I'm because you look so beautiful. I'm going to ask the question, and then I'm just going to give the whole screen <sighs> to you. Okay. And your beautiful self. Um, so my first question for you is about Robinhood. Mm-hmm. So I know, and I think a lot of people know that Robinhood pays for order flow and makes money. Well, gets paid for order flow. Is, obviously is yeah. paid for order flow and makes money in, in lots of different ways that maybe their average client may not be aware of. And my understanding is they've got a big SEC fine In the hopper, but it's not actually about getting paid for order flow. It's about not properly disclosing it. So I'd like to to get your view on what exactly is going on there. And first of all, do I have that issue correct? Yeah. And then second of all, you know, is it is this malfeasance? Is it something that just kind of happened accidentally? Or what? What are you? What are your views on what it really looks like?
1: So the core here is like getting paid for order flow is not actually that big a deal. And from an investor's perspective, really not that big a deal. Mostly what's happening here is when I'm putting my order in to buy something at hundred dollars, they're selling my order flow to somebody who's going to still look at the national best bid offer. And instead of selling it to me for hundred, they're going to sell it to me for 99.999. And they'll, "Quote unquote," improve my price by that fraction because they know they can go out and make the other side of that trade and still make money. And and this is this happens throughout the industry. Everybody gets paid for order flow to some extent. The difference is Robinhood built a whole business around aggressively selling that order flow, and the the challenge is the way they described that economics to their customers violated some rules and they'll get nailed for this. There'll be a settlement or I, I, I suspect they'll settle. I don't think they're going to fight this because I think they're probably guilty. Um, but what they're guilty of is simply not disclosing what they were making, what investors were paying for, whether or not there were going to be impacts. Um, you know, one of the reasons Robinhood makes money is they're a little bit less a little more indiscriminate about how much of the order flow they're selling and what the price improvements they're getting are, and they were rec- they were representing that everybody was getting this phenomenal pricing, best execution in the industry. Eh, they weren't getting the best execution in the industry. They were getting perfectly acceptable execution, but you know if you put the same order in at Fidelity, you probably would have gotten a slightly better price. Now we're talking about fractions of pennies, but still they did not do it as above board as they should have not super surprising. People are pushing the limits of what you can do with financial services on the internet. You know, shocking, absolutely nobody. They invented a different model for how to interact with the stock market. It's been hugely successful. I suspect they pay their fine and their business moves along just fine.
0: So what is your view of the um, broader state of affairs in kind of like the new asset management business, like the robos and, you know, all these new businesses in fintech that we're seeing pop up. What's your view on the level of transparency, access to information, et cetera. I, and, and the, re- and the reason I asked that is I've been on some robot, like I've tried them a bit myself and like found it really tough to find what I felt like was really basic information around fees and, and and what I'm actually paying for the service. That was my experience. It seems like it should just be, depends, everything should be super front and center.
1: Depends where you go. I think for the most part, ETFs have helped really bring transparency to most of those fees and transaction costs. If you go to someplace like Betterment, I think it's they're pretty upfront about what you're paying for and you're not paying for anything else. Meaning there's not like a a secret half a percent that's getting sucked out of your account that you didn't notice because your money market fund is charging 2% or something like that. Like there really isn't much of that. I think what's complicated is when you go to a robo that's then using you know, underlying ETFs, and now you've got all those embedded costs and there's trade-offs in those embedded costs. But then again, there's benefits in some of the tax loss harvesting that's happening. Trying to piece all that together as your personal experience can be a challenge And I actually think the sort of the next grand challenge in finance has nothing to do with cryptocurrency or any of this stuff that we talk, spend all our time talking about. it has to do with just the display layer, like the user interface of financial services writ large is garbage. And that's one of the reasons somebody like like Robinhood's done very well. Mm -hmm. Their industrial design is phenomenal, right? One could argue it's too good, right? It's engendering behaviors you probably shouldn't be participating in, like swiping to trade all the time. (laughs) And so I think there's huge opportunity for robo-advisors and brokers to really up their game in terms of how they display that information. It's there. It's just being managed by guys who got their design degrees in the 80s.
0: I think there's pretty much a unanimous view that the asset management industry in 10 years is going to look fundamentally different Mm -hmm. than the way that it looks now, right? Like everyone actually will agree on that and that it's moving toward digital. What do you think that actually means? What does that look like for you? How many of these companies that we're seeing that, that are out there now are going to break through and really be successful? And are there other things that haven't really happened yet that could be big drivers in the future?
1: I think the, so I I think the likelihood, you know, I'm in my mid fifties. I think the likelihood that when I retire that the ETF industry and the fund industry looks like it looks now is zero. Um, Fundamentally, we buy things in ETF or mutual fund wrappers. And this is true around the world. You buy a USITS fund or something like that because it is the most efficient way to get a set of exposures you want as an investor. That's the only reason. The government has told you this is an acceptable vehicle. Here are the rules around it. So that's what you get. It's not because we somehow all love the idea of piling into our S&P 500 ETF. It's just what's available. What's better is actually owning all those individual securities and being able to make individual decisions about whether you want to be in certain securities and managing them in a way that represents your personal situation, which is what extraordinarily high net worth individuals do, right? They go to a firm and they take their $100 million account and they don't just go buy Fidelity Magellan. They they invest in separate accounts that are specifically investing for them. And that allows them to do things like, say don't put any Google in my portfolio because I already have $10 million in Google stock that I have to burn down over the next 20 years or something like that. So whether we call that direct indexing or custom indexing, which is probably what we'll, you know, I think end up on, those kinds of quantitatively managed separate accounts, I think become the dominant mechanism for most investors in the next 10 to 15 years. 10 to 15 years is a real long time. So this isn't like it's just jumping right at us now, We're in this mode where direct indexing has gone from being this province of the ultra wealthy and institutions only, and really come down to the sort of $250,000 account level size for like anybody who really was interested. We've also seen the major players all get gobbled up. And anytime we see that, we know that's going to be mass marketed, right? They didn't buy like... You know, Morgan didn't buy Eaton, Vance, and Parametric because they're going to stick it in a box. No, they're doing that because they want this to be how they go out to the mass affluent investor market. BlackRock didn't buy Operio to put it in a box for institutions. They bought that to get it out to everybody. Schwab didn't buy Hardy, Ball and Motif team to just go do a Skunk Works project. No, that's, they're clearly going to roll Motif's version of direct indexing out to every Schwab customer. It's just a question of how and when.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting. I, you know, I know Josh Brown's been talking about that, and you guys. It's like three years ago you made it. Two, three years ago, whatever it was, three years you, ago. you and yeah. Matt Hogan made and it. I, Matt Hogan
1: and I talked about your, this on the front stage, and nearly stage laughed speech. off. Yeah.
0: and like it's starting to bear out in terms of what you're seeing happening in the market. Really interesting. Speaking of Matt Hogan, who he works at a company called Bitwise, and by the way, like everyone we know is now in the crypto business. <laughs> Like Boston, we run our sales at etf.com, is at uh, Coinbase, right? Yeah. Abner just joined the twins at Gemini. Matt Hogan, Don Friedman is working on a crypto thing as well.
1: Edelman, yeah. With Edelman. It's it's everybody, yeah. It's everybody. It's insane. It's insane. Phil Bach, Phil Bach's off doing that. Bach is in too. Tyrone Ross, yeah. Tyrone, I know.
0: Tyrone, I know. (laughs) Yeah. So crazy. so I wanna I I wanna get your big picture view of the space, but like let's drill down on 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 poor Matt Hogan yeah, a little so bit. So I'm
1: not gonna sit here and decide whether or not Bitcoin's a good idea not yeah. really my gig. Structurally, so what Matt and Bitwise launched, uh, and it's Bitwise, it's not just Matt. I mean, it's a whole company. Uh, BITW is a grantor trust under Section 144, which trades on the pink sheets in the US. If that hasn't scared you off yet, take a deep breath, get scared off. Like for the most part, nobody should ever be investing on the pink sheets. That like seems like a pretty reasonable, fun, you know, fundamental place to start. The problem is, is they're using effectively a loophole. It's not a loophole, it's written into the code. This idea that you can take a private trust and you can list it for public sale, but they're very strict rules about what can go on in that trust. The biggest one being there is no redemption, meaning if you want to sell it to somebody, you can only just sell it to somebody else who wants to buy it from you. Mm-hmm. So there's no pegging that happens on the sell side. Mm-hmm. And on the buy side, the only way to make new shares is to be an accredited investor, give them a bunch of money, and then sit on your shares like restic- restricted stock for a year. Mm-hmm. That's a really long time to try to arb out creation redemption problems. So what it means is it trades like a closed-end fund. The price of that thing is going, BITW is going to be whatever you can convince somebody else to buy or sell it to you for. That's it. And yeah, underneath the basket of currency.
0: And sky and they're sky high, right? Right now the premiums are
1: Yeah. What's, like I can tell you right now the premiums at what's BITW trading at? It's trading at 85 and it's worth 19. That's insane. That's insane. 500% premium.
0: Wasn't wasn't Matt, wasn't he making fun of like the other guys who launched?
1: GBTC. But GBTC is the version of this for Bitcoin, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And when that came out, there was a lot of stories written that said it's an ETF for Bitcoin, which is, this is so deeply not an ETF, right? So deeply not an ETF.
0: Creation, creation redemption, kind of fundamental to what an ETF Yeah,
1: kind of fundamental. So yeah. Now, the thing is like, I actually like the... Great scale guys. I think they're actually trying to do fun and interesting things. And you like in this Matt space. Hogan too. I like Matt Hogan, right? But these products are real difficult to suggest anybody own. I could never in a million years suggest anybody buy any asset that is trading at a substantial premium, much less, you know, a five bagger.
0: <laughs> like that makes no sense to me. Like that's purely speculative. Like, yeah, and how... it's a
1: stocking horse for becoming an ETF, right? The, the The good thing is, for both GBTC and BITW and ETHE, and like there are a bunch of these things out there now trading on the pink sheets, is that the pathway to turn them into ETFs is really darn simple. GBTC already filed for it. The SEC would just have to say yes, and Mm -hmm. it would become an ETF. Because under the hood, the core structure is just a grantor trust, like GLD. We're all real comfortable with how GLD works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. right? It's just a different kind of vault, it's a digital vault, yeah. and a different kind of security that you're moving in and out of that vault. So we know how to run this. You just have to say yes. So as soon as the SEC sort of got their what out of there, you know what, they could simply say, yeah, you guys can turn these all into ETFs. Those cl- premiums would collapse in one day, and then they would trade at fair value. And that seems reasonable to me.
0: Yeah, I want to... I, I- probably have to circle around with Matt again and have that conversation because the last time I think you'd probably agree was,
1: with everything I just said, honestly,
0: <laughs> was pre was pre that launch. Um, last fun topic that I had in mind anyway, was Tesla and like Tesla and going S&P. into the S and P 500, which is a crazy story in itself and, and an interesting one. And then also, you know, Effectively, it went up when everyone had to buy, which shouldn't be too surprising considering how big of a component you know, it's a, it's a, it's cap weighted index, right? Market right. cap weighted index. And then it went down after um, some significant chunk, I think the day after anyway. And I remember I saw Balkunas was talking about it on social media. And it was really interesting because obviously ARC is a huge investor in Tesla, and Tesla was down, I don't know, five ten percent, and Arc was up, which was yeah. nuts. Which is like, you go, Kathy. So yeah, because like, the, the both reason- those things are interesting to me to talk about. So I would love context and, and your views on on how the, maybe how the S and P is run a little bit, um, and and on uh, Arc as well. Yeah,
1: so. So let's let's tease a couple of things apart here. So first of all, how is it possible that ARKK is going up when Tesla going down? It's because they also owned a bunch of biotech stuff that was on fire that day. Mm-hmm. You know, first object lesson is diversification actually works. So congratulations. Um, you know, as far as how much they own, ARK actually owns an insignificant amount of Tesla as far as Tesla is concerned, but they punch way above their weight in terms of media, Mm
0: -hmm. right? Like the
1: Vanguard owns like seven times more Tesla than ARKK does or than ARK as a group does. But Vanguard isn't publishing good research about the electric vehicle industry and battery technology on Mm -hmm. a weekly basis, which ARK is, right? Mm -hmm. ARK's core ethos is about not just investing, but explaining their investments constantly. Like I get an email every day with the full trade list yep. of everything that our trades, right? Nobody else does that the way they do. So the va- the real genius of what they're doing there, obviously the performance has been stellar, um, but you know, reasonable people can argue about the value of luck and skill and something like that. But there's no question that their marketing and education Angle is unique and powerful and been very effective. So put that to the side for a second. The S&P thing, look, the, the problem with the S&P 500, and it's uniquely the S&P 500, not everything that S&P does, but the S&P 500 specifically is that it is an actively managed index, yeah. it, right? It is a committee that decides things. Um, and they hate it when you say that,
0: but how can you say anything else? I, but, I but
1: it's it. true. Like there's a rule book, but it's a rule book. They change anytime they want to, mm-hmm. they make exceptions when they feel like it. They, and, and, and that's effectively what happened with Tesla is they said, well, you can't really be in the index because you haven't hit these hurdles. And then they hit mm-hmm. those hurdles. So they really didn't have anything else they could do. So they said, fine, you can come into the index. And because there's not like a vigorous rule book on how you manage the ads, it just got effectively dumped into being what the fifth, seventh largest position in the index, which is bananas to me.
0: I don't get it. I don't get it. Like the index, if it was being run intelligent, I mean, if it was being, like the ideal way to run that index, I remember Gus Souter saying this years and years ago, like journal of indexes article in in the old days, like he said, any big index should have, rebalance happen one twelfth one twelfth one twelfth one twelfth over a year which totally makes sense to me right something like that that mitigates especially in a case like that right where you are Gus was way ahead
1: of his time, because you'll remember, they also abandoned the S&P 500. Like, they put (laughs) their money where their mouth was. They fired S&P from VOO, right? And then, like, a decade later, they came back and said, fine, we'll relicense it, because it turns out investors really care about the brand.
0: And by the way, you guys, I, I had an argument with you and Matt about this. I remember. It was really a fun one, where you guys thought Vanguard was insane to do that. Like, why would you give up the, and MSCI as well, right? The MSCI and the S&P brand, and you're just going to bleed and you're going to lose all this institutional money. And I was like, yeah, but it's the long game and it's all about the Vanguard brand. And I was like, it totally makes sense. But then they came back. It's (laughs) disintermediation. Well, but like, So I'll ask you again, do you think it was a wise decision for them to divorce themselves from S&P and MSCI?
1: Yes, I think it was a wise decision for them to divorce themselves. In retrospect, of course, it was right. They they're master of their own fates. They're not getting swung around by every headline about inclusion or exclusion here or there. So I think they have now backed off into a position where they've sort of had their cake and eat it too. Some of the funds are S and P based. Some of the funds are their sort of more proprietary crisp indexes. Some of the funds are still tied to things like FTSE. Yeah. So. I think they've optimized, they haven't, they haven't made a call based on a certain position. They've just optimized the fund product line, which is probably the economically smart thing to do. Doesn't make the S&P 500 any dumber and any less dumb of an index, which it is, and it is proven how dumb an index it is uh, by the way this has been handled. In the end, does anybody quote unquote get hurt by all this? Not really. There were a lot of arguments going on on Twitter about like. How Vanguard somehow was getting away with murder because they could sell their Tesla position from VXF with the extended market fund, which obviously Tesla was a huge position in. I think it was like seven percent of VXF, mm-hmm. which never happens in an extended market fund. Mm-hmm. Um, that somehow they could, uh, you know, get away with booking those profits and not paying taxes and all this jazz, <laughs> when in fact, like, or that somehow the performance was going to get like allocated but never taxed and. And none of that's true, right? The the whole creation redemption mechanism just means that you pay taxes based on your experience. And Mm -hmm. all that run up in Tesla was in the NAV of all those funds. So Mm -hmm. you participated in it. So you'll pay it when you sell. But just that, it leaves a real bad taste in my mouth, to be honest, because it's just so ham-handed. It's not like we don't know how to do it better. Like- Modern indexes have buffer zones. They have ways of add, you know, adding and subtracting securities under over more than one day in a market on close order. There are other ways to do this. There's no reason it had to be so bad.
0: And you would think maybe an event like that makes them take a look at it again. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I think
1: what it does is it makes a lot of institutions realize they shouldn't be pegging anything to the S&P 500. I actually think this is bad for the S&P and it will continue to erode their dominance of the large cap U.S. core benchmark. Uh, and people will start looking for alternatives, right? I mean,
0: in reality, it's been a it's been a bigger issue for a longer time in the Russell two thousand, for example. Well, and then the which has had wild swings because you're much less liquid in the market. And,
1: yeah, but the Russell 2000 thing has been largely priced in for 15 years, right? So yep. yeah, it used to be an issue. I don't know anybody buying places in the Hamptons based on their Russell Rebell trades anymore. Like that was a 90s thing. It gets
0: priced out and like, oh, it used to get priced out two weeks before and that was a no, month like, and then you don't know. And it's just blurry. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't
0: know. Maybe the solution is there or in that direction for them to have advisories further out or- Well, um, I, or you manage, I, manage
1: buffer zones, right? Yeah. You allow companies to enter. Like The thing that's broken about the way the, S, the S&P 500 works is that there are all of these other requirements. It's not just a cap-weighted index, right? It's a cap-weighted index, but- And all the butts are what means you go from not coming in at 4.99, but coming in at number six. That's the problem, right? If Tesla had come in when they were the 500th largest company a couple years ago,
0: this would have been no been a non-issue, right? Yeah, they came in huge. They came in huge. Yeah. Yeah, that was the. That was what, when you saw it, I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. I'm going to watch this. Well, and
1: it's particularly the idea that you have to sort of be profitable for a certain amount of time before you can enter the index guarantees this will happen again because Mm -hmm. the current way companies come to market in the U.S. is they go public long before their profitable going concerns. which means it's only a matter of time before we get the next company we're not paying attention to that is not profitable, that just raises an enormous amount of capital and races up to the top of the cap sheet and then starts turning on profitability. Amazon basically did this.
0: Yep. Well, um, great to get the chance to catch up with you, Dave. We should do this again sometime. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for listening. Pennies from Heaven was produced by Spark Network, Jim Wyant, and Elizabeth Thompson. Our theme music is Pearl Charles's Take Your Time. You can find her music at pearlcharlesmusic.bandcamp.com. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and sparknetwork.com.